Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Trust in God, a strong abode is our theme as we come to the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 5. And we're working our way through this Gospel, and this morning we find ourselves in the middle of a, a section of three events in the life of Jesus that all uniquely highlight His power and the person of Jesus, which is forcing His disciples to reckon with who this Jesus really is. Last week, we saw Jesus' power and authority to calm the storm, power over nature as the wind and the waves stopped at just a word. That is perhaps all well and good, someone might say, but what about the supernatural world? And today, in the second episode of this section, we will find that Jesus' power and authority is just as total and just as absolute over the spiritual powers above us as he is over the spiritual or the the natural forces around us. So we want to read today Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it in our hearts to magnify your name and draw us to yourself. 
We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. In her devotional, A Young Person's Guide to Knowing God, Patricia St. John shares the story of three missionaries who went to share the gospel in Africa. They met with an interest and a desire to know God and this son who brought salvation. But there was one great hesitation among the people. All the people feared the witch doctor whose influence dominated that region. Gradually, a few people did put their trust in Jesus. And when others saw that no evil befell them at the hands of the witch doctor, more and more began to turn to Jesus in greater and greater numbers. The witch doctor grew angry at his diminishing influence. And one night, the three missionaries were warned that warriors were being sent to kill them. They waited, determined not to fight back, but no attack came. In fact, no attack ever came. Several years later, though, these missionaries were surprised when an old and broken man, feathers and monkey tails trailing behind him, entered their tent. It was the witch doctor. And he had come, he said, to learn about this Son of God and this salvation that he offered. And there in that tent, the man who had given his life to demonic power trusted Christ and was set free. Eventually, the men asked him, they said, why didn't you kill us that night years ago? And the witch doctor said, well, it was because of that fourth man that was sitting with you in the tent. And there in that moment, the men realized how thoroughly God had been protecting them And breaking the power of Satan's grip on that region one step at a time. First in the hearts of the people. Then for the protection of his missionaries. And finally in the life of the witch doctor himself. And stories like this remind us, don't they, that the supernatural powers of darkness are very much still at play in the world. And yet those supernatural powers, just like the forces of nature, are completely and totally subject to to the power and the authority of Jesus. It's the same lesson we learn in our passage this morning, which is the longest and most detailed account of Jesus driving out a demon in all of the Gospels. But the very length and detail of this passage only further emphasizes the power of Jesus, which he employs for the salvation of his people. And it's those two points that I want to draw our attention to this morning. The power of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus for the salvation of his people. Let's begin by looking at the power of Jesus. You know, the story begins as Jesus arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee after his adventure with the calm storm. And the exact place of Jesus' landing is some matter of debate. If you were to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will see that The town is variously called the Gerasenes, the Gergesenes, or the Gadarenes. And the reality is that all three Gospels have manuscripts which each mention each of these cities. And this is not because the Bible has an error in it, but because it's clear that copyists got these three similar sounding names mixed up over the ages. And you can imagine Gerasa, Gadara, and Gergesa causing some confusion in these copyists. It seems from early church history that the consensus early on was very much that this was the town of Gergesa, which also makes the most sense geographically since that is the one that is right on the seacoast. 
but we will uh, know that there is some matter of question around that. There's also a question because, of course, Mark and Luke talk about a demon-possessed man, while Matthew talks about two demon-possessed men. But again, this difference doesn't need to trouble us. While Scripture doesn't tell us for certain what the answer is, it's exactly the kind of detail that differs in eyewitness accounts all the time. Not because one is wrong, but because they are focused on different details. It seems likely that Matthew is referencing all those who were present, while Mark and Luke focus on the key figure as the narrative unfolds. So I mentioned these two things right in the first verse, but from there, the rest of the story is perfectly clear. Jesus is met by this demon-possessed man. And the text begins by emphasizing the demon's power by tracing out the details in categorical terms. You see them in verses 3 and following. No one could bind him, not even with chains or iron shackles. The strongest tools of control that men had were useless. They had been snapped and wrenched in pieces by this man. And no one had the strength to subdue him any longer. You see the categorical terms in which his strength is described. He is also outside of civilization, dwelling in the tombs night and day. He is out of control, crying out, cutting himself with stones. And the extent of the power involved becomes clear as the man tells Jesus that his name is Legion. While the number probably shouldn't be pressed too specifically, a legion in the Roman army would have numbered over 5,000 troops. And the name is clearly communicating a significant assembly of demons. Clearly, we're dealing with a power that is supernatural, evil, and far beyond human strength. And yet, do you notice in the story that Jesus is still in absolute control at every moment? When the demon-possessed man comes to Jesus, he immediately falls at Jesus' feet rather than attacking him or driving him away as he had with all the others. He pleads with Jesus. That's the attitude of an inferior to one who has authority. He calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God, recognizing Jesus as the Son of the one true God who is above all powers. He begs Jesus not to torment him, recognizing that Jesus has the authority to judge and punish. The demons ask Jesus permission before they do anything. And then at a simple word, even legions of gathered spiritual forces of darkness plead a no contest and run to the pigs. At every turn, do you see, with every word and every response, the story is spotlighting the fact that Jesus is in complete authority over this man and the demons in him. In authority that is so thoroughly dominating him. And this, a man who had been uncontrollable by any human strength to this point. And so once again, to the disciples and to those around, such power is completely outside of the realm of their expectation or experience. And this is now the second time in his many days that Jesus forces his disciples to ask, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him at a word. Even legions of demons flee at a word. We have one here who is far greater than the prophets. Only the Most High God himself has this kind of power and authority. And this is so significant for us as God's people. 
You know, Pastor Steve Lawson once remarked, the Christian life is no playground. It is a battlefield of spiritual warfare. And Satan is at work to oppose God's people and God's word in many different ways. At times, Satan works, as in this story, through demon-possessed people. At times, Satan works through unexpected suffering and loss, like in the life of Job when his children were killed, or like in the life of the disabled woman Jesus freed from Satan's bondage in Luke chapter 13. At times, Satan works in the form of temptation to sin, like with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. At times, Satan works through the lure of materialism and pleasure, as Revelation 17 indicates. At times, Satan works through philosophies and beliefs and the arguments of our culture, as Paul warns in 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. And while it would absolutely be a mistake to attribute all temptations and sicknesses or hardships to the direct involvement of Satan, Paul warns that Satan is and does attack God's people, and he often does so behind the scenes of events in our lives, and that he is too strong for us in our own strength. As Paul puts it, we wrestle against cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil, not against flesh and blood. And because of that, Paul says in Ephesians 6, we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And to be strong in the Lord is not a last-ditch effort. Jesus is not, Paul is not saying, well, we've tried other things and are too strong, so let's try being strong in the Lord. Not at all. Strong in the Lord is the tower of refuge and strength. And this story demonstrates with absolute clarity that if we have put our faith in Christ such that He by His Spirit dwells within us, then the one who is in us is so far much greater than he who is in the world. So far greater that a mere word, the mere presence of our Lord who dwells in us by the power of His Spirit is enough to cause Satan and even legions of his demons to flee. He is our refuge and our strength. And he has promised to us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so once again, we do not need to fear the storms of life. Jesus calms them with a word. Nor do we need to fear the spiritual forces of evil and the the spiritual battle of life. For Jesus calms and completely controls them with a word as well. If you have trusted Christ, he is with you. And his is the power of the Most High God. And his is perfect protection. So this power of Jesus is strong hope for God's people. But having looked a bit at the power of Jesus, I want us to go on and see the purpose of Jesus. Because this story is not just a story about power as if to say, hey, look how strong Jesus is. It does show us that. And that is a comfort But this story is also about how his power is used to accomplish his purposes, the redemption of his people. Maybe go back and think about this story from the perspective of the demon-possessed man. He is a visible image of the wreckage of sin. He's isolated and cut off from community. He is out of control doing harm to himself and to others. He is enslaved by the power of demons who live in him, but whom he does not have the ability to throw off. And in fact, his enslaved heart does not even seem to want freedom 
from the demons. You'll notice in verse 10 that is the man singular who says to Jesus, do not send them, the demons, out of the country. And the demon-possessed man, of course, is not only under the sway of sin, he is also thoroughly unclean. He is filled with an unclean spirit. He is dwelling among the tombs which would make one unclean, next to the pig pasture which was unclean. And such uncleanliness meant that he was unfit and unable to come into the presence of God. And don't we have here such a perfect picture of sin enslaved to evil, lacking self-control, doing harm to himself and others, and unable to be in the presence of God? Of course, when we think of sin in our lives, we make our sin look so much more respectable. All we're doing, of course, I'm not being wicked, we're just expressing ourselves and doing what seems best to us. But this story is showing us the true nature of sin. In fact, even if sin might look more respectable in our lives than in the life of this demon-possessed man, remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first three verses. Paul says that When we are dead in our sins, we were following the prince of the power of the air. And the evidence that of our enslavement to the prince of the power of the air is that we carry out the desires of our body and our mind. That is the evidence that we are following and under sway of this prince of the power of the air. And so, Paul says, we are children of wrath like all mankind. You know, who needs dramatic demon possession? if we are satisfactorily trapped in materialism, self-fulfillment, personal desires, anger, unwilling to submit to God and to his word. Now, I think it goes without saying that no one from Gergesa had any desire to go near these tombs and this demon-possessed man. I sort of uh, imagine a conversation between a a child and his parents. Mom, I'm going out to play with Joseph now. That's fine. Have fun. But don't go near the tombs. You know what could happen there. No one wanted to go and be around this man. And yet, as is so often the case all throughout the Gospels, Jesus goes there. Jesus goes where no man would have wanted to be. Jesus pursues a man who was not seeking to be pursued. Jesus, grace, loves a man who doesn't deserve it and doesn't ask for it. Because underneath this wolf's clothing, Jesus sees one of his sheep and he goes after him. Jesus comes and commands the demons to come out of this man. And when they ask permission to enter the herd of pigs, Jesus grants it. But you notice that the first and the most immediate result of this permission that Jesus gives is the change in this man's life, the sheep of God's who is redeemed and set free and restored to his right mind. And when he's restored to his right mind, he doesn't jump up, rejoice, go high-five his friends and run to the local tavern for a cheeseburger. He sits at the feet of Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus because he recognizes what his Savior has done from him. Look at this picture. This man has gone from unclean, out of control, miserable, self-harming, to loved, healed, forgiven, restored. 
What a beautiful picture we have here of the redemption that Jesus has come to offer to every sinner. Of the wholeness and the healing that is ours if we will respond in faith to Christ's call. Because that was Jesus' purpose. To use his power, to employ his power and his presence to save his people. Well, this is the power of Jesus. It's the purpose of Jesus to redeem and restore his people. But if we're going to talk about application, we need to go on to look at verses 14 to 20, where we see two very different responses to Jesus and to his power. You know, when Jesus gives permission to the demons, they promptly leave the man and enter the pigs. And the pigs, 2,000 strong, make a mad dash down the bank and into the sea. Now, if you're like me, this episode raises all sorts of questions. Why did the demons want to go into pigs? And if they did, why did they drown themselves? And where did the demons go once the pigs were drowned? And why did Jesus let him go into the pigs? I mean, why did the pigs have to die? And we have all these questions that come into our mind. And of course, the text answers none of them. It does seem like a senseless loss of animals, perhaps, to us. It certainly represented a tremendous financial loss to their owners. In fact, the atheist Bertrand Russell, in his essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, a hundred years ago, went so far as to say that Jesus' willingness to let pigs die in this story was one reason he could never respect Jesus. Now, I would dare to say that we don't know enough about the spiritual realm to determine that this was an unnecessary act by any means. But you notice that the one fact that does stand out in all three gospel accounts is that none of the gospel writers talk about the pigs at all. Their focus is completely on the man who is restored and redeemed and saved. And so perhaps isn't the emphasis here that it is worth any price to rescue a soul from sin and from Satan. And so with all due respect to Mr. Russell, who as a Brit certainly liked his bacon and sausage, the death of pigs to redeem a man enslaved to sin and Satan is far more justifiable than the death of pigs for his breakfast. But whatever the specific reasons for Jesus' actions, it's clear that there are two different responses to what Jesus does. The first is the response of the townspeople. You know, the herdsmen ran off immediately to tell what had happened to everybody in town. And undoubtedly, there's a bit of self-interest here. I mean, the, the herdsmen were responsible for these herds. And you can imagine their owners saying, now, wait a second, you just let the entire herd run themselves into the sea. And so the herdsmen are quick to point out that there were powers outside their control at work. And of course, it wasn't just this factor. This is an unbelievable act. It's outside anyone's experience. And just like we all do, when something unbelievable happens, we talk about it. And just like we all do, when something unbelievable happens, everyone wants to go out and see it. And so everyone from the towns and countries comes out to see for themselves. And sure enough, there were the carcasses filling the original Bay of Pigs. <laughs> and there was, there was the demon-possessed man, of course, sitting right there in his right mind and talking with Jesus and seeing the evidence for themselves. The response of these town people is the opposite of what we might expect. They immediately beg, not just ask, but beg, Jesus to leave. Why? Why would they do that? Well, perhaps the monumental financial loss of their herds was part of it, but I doubt that was the crux of the issue. The heart of the matter, I believe, is 
Just like the disciples in the storm were more afraid when they saw Jesus' power than they were in the midst of the storm, so the people here realized that as much as they had hated and feared the demon-possessed man shrieking up in the tombs, Jesus has a power far beyond that, and it terrifies them. And they want nothing to do with that kind of power and authority in their midst. And I would suggest the same is true for many today. I had an email exchange with someone recently, and our conversation was cordial until we hit up with a particular issue in this person's life that went against God's word. And his conclusion was, I don't want anything to do with a God like yours who would assert the authority to tell me how I can live my life. You know, a tame God who can help us with our plans A tame God who can show up when we need him, who fits within my box, that's all well and good, of course. But if we like our lives the way they are, if we find security in being in control, if we do not want a God who would make demands on us or set standards for us or deserve worship and obedience from us, we may respond the same way that these townspeople did and ask Jesus to leave us alone. But you know, there's a lot in this story that is outside of our experience. But I think verse 18 is the most terrifying line of this whole story. Because in verse 18, we find out that Jesus grants their requests and departs from them. And what a warning to us not to keep Jesus at arm's length, not to ask him to let us alone in our life. Because Jesus may well grant that request to our eternal harm. Well, that is response number one. But the formerly demon-possessed man responds so much differently. He knows how much the Lord has saved him from. He realizes that the infinite divine majesty has used its power to free him from the grip of sin and Satan over his life. And his response is a longing to be with Jesus. We see him sitting at the feet of Jesus. We see him asking to be with Jesus. And this longing itself ought to be an application for our hearts. We all know that there will be emotional ups and downs in our Christian life. There are times when there is a fire in our soul for the Lord and times when we have to fight tooth and nail to maintain the rhythms of prayer and the word. But those emotional ups and downs should never take away from our desire to be with our Savior, to love our Savior, for we owe him everything and we belong to him. Our prayer, I think, should be in the words of Jesus from Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus, that we should never lose our first love for our Savior. And so my prayer is that this redeemed man would set us a pattern and an example May his commitment, his desire to be with Jesus never wane in our hearts. But the irony of this story is that while Jesus grants the request of the townspeople to leave, he does not grant the request of this demon-possessed man to go with him. Why not? He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I think many find it odd that throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus consistently tells people not to talk about him, not to tell what the Lord had done for him. And yet here is a man who wants to go with Jesus, and he says, no, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Why? Why the difference? 
We don't know for sure. It may be because Jesus was leaving the region, so thronging crowns with crowds would not hinder his ministry. It may be because this appears to have been a largely Gentile area, so there was less likelihood of a misunderstood messianic expectation, but we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that Jesus knew what he was doing. And what we do know for sure is that Jesus' command to us today is the same as it was to this man, to go and tell how much the Lord has done for us. You know, there are many things that can overwhelm us about talking about our faith. We get questions rolling in our mind. We think, well, what is that person going to say? What if they ask questions that I can't answer? What if I don't explain it well? We know the sort of tightening of our chest that happens when we come with an opportunity to talk about the Lord. But Jesus' words to this man are so simple. He says, just tell them what the Lord has done for you. And you notice that in obedience to these instructions, what the Lord has done for you, the man goes out and talks about Jesus and tells what Jesus had done for them. And that is our invitation as well. It's the power of personal testimony. If there is anything that is still acceptable in our culture, it is the freedom to share personally of where I am at. And that is an open door to share personally, my own testimony of what the Lord has done for me. A little over a year ago, I was at a church in Birmingham, and the pastor told myself and a few others a story about a woman in their congregation who was either directly or indirectly responsible for over 100 people coming to know Christ in their congregation. And naturally, I said, well, what did she do to bring so many people to know the Lord? He said, well, she just went to parks year after year and connected with other moms. And as they discussed the challenges of motherhood that they were facing together, she shared how the Lord was her strength and how she found hope in the gospel and the challenges of motherhood. And then she would ask them if they knew the Lord who had given her such strength and hope. She didn't need an apologetics course. She didn't need a seminary degree. She just shared how much the Lord had done for her. And the same is true of us. And so may we heed Jesus' words wherever we are. May we follow this man's example so that everyone that the Lord puts in our path might marvel at how great our God and Savior is and what he has done for us. So step back then at the end of our text this morning. What has God given us In his word today, he's given us yet another reminder of who Jesus is. That Jesus is none other than the Lord himself, the son of the most high God, who has all power and all authority over all things natural and supernatural. He's given us the reminder that this Jesus has employed all of his divine strength to rescue and to redeem his people out of his own gracious love for us. And so this week, may we rest in him, in his strength, in his salvation. And may we, as he gives us opportunity, tell anyone how much the Lord has done for us. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the way that you shine a light on the character of your son, Jesus Christ, week after week. How we thank you for how you hold out in front of us week after week the offer of salvation, of redemption, of rescue, as you did to this man. Father, we thank you 
for such a salvation from sin that so easily traps us and has every one of us from birth. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the strength, the divine strength of our Savior, which is our protection in the spiritual warfare day by day. And Father, how we thank you for your Spirit's presence with us. Would you give us the words to say that we might honor your name and give praise to you as we share what the Lord has done for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.